Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 2 The Battle of Moitura. Episode 12 An Experiment in Story Archaeology. Wow! Uh, hi everybody! Look, this week we actually get to the end of our explorations for now on the <laughs> wonderful Sarah Moitura. Yeah. Come think of it, we began shortly after Samhain, didn't we? Yeah. And we should have completed our labour of Heracles by Beelzebub. Which seems perfectly appropriate, the traditional storytelling season. There's one more treat, though, that we're keeping for the future. Go oh, on, there go is. On, give away a bit. <laughs> well, we've been working, as you know, on the sections of untranslated poetry. So from, a load of them there are. From the 9th century text. And what we will have for you, hopefully by next Samhain, is a full performance of all of those translated and put into Chris's good poetic modern English. With, your, with the early Irish spoken as yes. well. Yeah, it, it's turned out that it's, it's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. It's really quite difficult and we're mm. having great fun, but we don't want to rush it. Exactly. And besides that, we want other people involved in the performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that we, you can hear it in the early Irish and also in modern English. That you can understand. And these are the yeah. parts that if you go to Grey, they're not fine translated. No, <laughs> there's a good reason for it. Thinking about our journey, we've, we've made some really exciting and surprising discoveries along the way. Well, yeah. I feel as though we have. I think so, yeah. And uh, today, we what we want to do is have a go at some hands-on experimental story archaeology. If you can have our experimental archaeology, why shouldn't you have experimental story archaeology? Exactly. Uh, this should make use of the whole story, mm. but we will give reference to the podcast episode that covers the bits we're talking about. Exactly. If you want the details, that's where you go. Yeah. So, the text. Yes, this text, which, as we've said many times, it dates from the 9th century, and by that time it is a whole cloth in itself, but it is made up of various different weaves. Uh, maybe we can identify some of the threads. Yeah, see what happens if we pull. One approach to pulling those threads is a linguistic approach. Yeah, there are pottery shards and small finds. Yes, <laughs> they are, and, and very important from a point of view of dating. Mm -hmm. uh, now, in Elizabeth Gray's edition, uh, in her introduction, she lists sections of the tale which show really good markers for this being 9th century old Irish yeah, because yeah. it uses the preterite tense, whereas when you get into the Middle Irish period, sort of post-10th century, you expect to find the perfect so tense. So we've got dating evidence from yeah. this text. Yeah, we've got markers. And of course, that. if you, as it were, look at the landscape of the mm. text, one way of looking at it is that Christianity was well established by the time that this text was written down. Absolutely. Not by the time it was told, but by the time it was written down. Mm. It was definitely thoroughly established. Mm. Yet there's no internal evidence for Christian culture in the text. No, I mean, the, there's the very occasional sort of throwaway reference to the Holy Spirit, but it's not integral to actually telling the story itself. No, it's a very pre-Christian tale. It is. And, of course... As I said, you know, the, the, the before it was written down, there was a long oral development of the story, which just has to be there. And during that time, there was a great deal of cultural interchange. Mm. And, you know, stories would have been borrowed right across the Celtic world, borrowed yeah. and, in, and exchanged mm. right across the Celtic world. Absolutely. And uh, by the Celtic world, we need to be a bit more specific because there is a tendency to lump 
Celts, the Celtic world together. Together. Yeah. But there are really distinct things within that. We've got the continental Celtic. Now they're the ones that Caesar goes on about. Exactly. And there was a time when you could say that Western Europe was a Celtic empire. Yeah, this is the Latin culture, the... And the Hallstatt. Yeah. And, yeah the, and they have very distinctive archaeological features. And it's often what we think about when we talk about the Celts. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's worth remarking that a lot of the evidence for that does come from foreign sources it is you know people like Caesar and Lucian exactly yeah then you've got the insular Celts yeah the insular Celts refers to the islands off the west coast of Europe so the island of Britain and usually that includes Ireland um, but as we've said before if you go back to series one episode five search for Bridget there is archaeological evidence for an actual Celtic civilization on the island of Britain. It's why there's so many Iron Age sites there. It does, and they're similar to the uh, settlements that you get on the continent. There are more similarities, yeah. They're, yeah, although it's still distinctive, it's still distinctively British. I've always found it distinct, yeah. Yeah, um, but then you get Irish as well, and even though Irish is classed as a Celtic language because it shares uh, a root with those other parts of the Western Europe that have Celtic languages. There's no archaeological evidence of a Celtic civilization. And as you say, you, the Irish stories you always maintain to me are not Celtic. No, exactly. I know, it's a great, it's a great discussion, but we can't go into detail again. No, we we did cover it in the search for Bridget. Look, let's get on with what we intended to do today, which is actually getting on with our experiment in story archaeology. Yes. Would you like, go tell us what we're going to do. Well, we want to play around with the idea and see if we can just get right down to what might be, might be, very speculatively, an Irish proto-story that developed into the tale of Maitura. The Battle of Maitura. Mm. Yeah, now this obviously has to be quite speculative. Oh yes, this is... This is a nice game in story archaeology. It's like when you see uh, land archaeologists playing around with forges and, you know, ancient recipes and so on. That's what we're yeah, trying Yeah, you to discover do. if you play around with it, you might come up with something new. New perspective, at least. Yeah, but I mean, Moitura is, well, it is unique. But the thing about the story of Moitura is it's very localised. It it's It's set here in the west of Ireland and it's only in the children of Tura you even get mentions of Tara. Exactly. So it's very, very much set here. And the Fovera only appear in Irish stories. Yeah. They, they, they're, they're not pinched from anywhere else. No. But it's always been categorised as a story about the, the divine battles between gods. You oh, know? yeah. Uh, the, 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 the gods of the Dalan and the gods of the Fovera are yeah. fighting each other for a new world order. Yeah. Uh, in the same way as you get the battles between the Aesir and the Vanir, the Divas, the, the Asuras, the Titans and Olympians. Yeah. All of that crowd. Yeah. And I suppose that's why sometimes the 19th century classical trained scholars who were used to the stories of the Titans and the Olympians mm. would see it as... Well, it's not so developed. It's more primitive. Yeah. But I think that's because they've they miscategorised it. Yeah, they made a bit of a category mistake. We've, we have talked about this, I think, quite a lot through the series. Um, that what we have with the Dodan and the Fovera is not the good gods and the evil demons fighting it out. That they are two branches of the same family, mm-hmm. and that in fact, what's happening in the story is. Um, more subtle than that, let's mm-hmm. say. We felt it's about, um, you know, the key, key important keeping of the natural order of things. Exactly. Um, 
But the other thing we've come across, and I think we've, we've talked about an awful lot over the series, it's, um, we've come to the conclusion that some of the much-loved or main characters are, in fact, shiny foreigners. Yes. The, it's, I mean, yeah, they'd made their way into the story by the ninth century. They're there. They're oh, part absolutely. of it. They're deeply entrenched. Mm. But they didn't start as Irish characters. They began as continental or insular Exactly, figures. yeah. We particularly talked about this when we were talking about Log in uh, episode three of this series. Um, where he's so such a popular continental Celtic figure that he seems to have sort of had to be He was there in. first exactly. before he was here. In terms of the 9th century text, when we're talking about shiny foreigners, we're talking about the time of the Celtic civilization, maybe a thousand years before. So it they easily will have come into an Irish cultural context. Oh, by yeah, that we're time. not pretending. We're, we're going to, we're trying to go back. Yeah. If we want to go to a proto story, mm. let's see what happens if we exclude the shiny foreigners. It's a bit like one of those diets where you cut out bit by bit to see what. <laughs> Until you end up with lamb, rice, and pears. Yeah, yeah. But let's see what we get. Let's yeah. see if we can create our lamb, rice, and pears story. <laughs> oh, let's hope it's more interesting than that. Yeah. <laughs> Now, it's worth remembering that the full title of our tale is Cathmagaturad Ganavan Bresh Augusariga, which is the Battle of Maitura, the conception of Bresh and his reign. Mm-hmm. So Bresh is pretty central. We've no intention of getting rid of him. For one thing, there's no cognate either to him as a character or his name. No, he's completely unique, isn't he, to I think, Yeah, I think he's definitely Irish. You know, we don't even have a Welsh version, really. No, and the only time he appears in anything else is one of the Dinshalicus stories. Exactly, yeah. But he's, his connection is, again, is with the Battle of Moitura. He's just here. Exactly, exactly. Um, and what's more, uh, in Gray's analysis of the text in terms of which parts show mm-hmm. good old Irish preterites, all of Brescia's story is told in that good, solidly dateable old Irish preterites included. <laughs> good old Irish preterites. Sounds like a fossilised rock. <laughs> well, Sounds geological in some way. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about the strata of the story. With it. Well, this is the preterite strata. Well, it is slightly. Um, <laughs> rather than being some kind of mineral, um, the best uh, explanation I can give to non-grammarians, non-philologists of the preterite is that essentially you've got yeah, these... I can't make any tale of it, don't worry. <laughs> for the past tense in Irish, um, leaving out the imperfect, you've got the perfect tense and then you've got the preterite. And it's a bit like in French... Oh, the past historic. Exactly, the past oh. historic and the, the other <laughs> bit one is... archaic. Yeah, exactly. And it's in the old Irish times, it's used particularly for storytelling. Um, and like I say, by the time you get to sort of post 10th century, the perfect tense is starting to take its yeah, place. So it is a sort of archaic way of telling a formal story. It is, yeah. So it's, it's the formal storytelling voice marker. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh no, that makes sense to me. Well, look, let's look at Bresch. I mean, basically, uh, he gets into the story through his conception, first of all. You oh, know, yeah. the story of Elitha and Eru and this meeting by the bank and she turns up and he turns up and she goes, oh, you're a bit of all right. And he says, uh, <laughs> OK, how about it? And she, you know, and she says, oh, but I have not made a tryst with you. And he, goes, and he well, says, well, come and make a tryst now. <laughs> and then after their union, she says, well, um, who are you? <laughs> Uh, and will you call me? <laughs> yeah, and he gives her a ring. <laughs> no, literally. He says, yeah. I'll give you a ring. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, and he prophesies the birth of this beautiful and wonderful child. But yes. if you if you go back to the episode about Bresh. Which is series two, episode two. 
we were absolutely clear that it seems like this is a deliberate it's it's a real approach. setup yeah and particularly yeah. when you analyze Brescia's name which we always find terribly important and the very chaos. telling it is it's the kind of the din or the uproar is what it's about yeah. and the fact that uh, part of Elitha's kind of prophecy is to say every beautiful thing in Ireland it will be compared to that boy so that they say it is a Brescia mm -hmm. which means every beautiful thing in Ireland will be an uproar yeah. Yeah. it's almost as though the, the, this is a deliberate attempt Mm. to uh, put a fly in the ointment, mm. to do something that's going to upset the balance. Yeah, it's a subversion of the order yeah. that exists. And then, of course, uh, Bresh becomes king because of another upset. Yes. Because Nuador has lost his arm. Yeah. And even though he's got this wonderful silver arm, mm. he can't be king anymore. Exactly. He's still excluded from the role. So Bresh is the one who's So what about Nuador, though? Mm. I mean, he's he's best known in England. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's one of the insular characters. Yeah. Very much. Do we keep him? Well, we did talk about this. This was a, a, the first episode of, of this series on Maitura. And while he's very much an insular uh, figure. He's very well known. Very in popular in Britain, you know, and, and well loved. Yeah. Um, the Welsh borders, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But in, in our tale, he is described as a king from overseas. Yeah, and it's also the silver hand, uh, as I think we mentioned in episode mm. one, denotes him as a trader. Yeah. He's got connections with the Fisher King and the Wounded King. Yeah. I th I think there's it's certainly, you know, Bresh is absolutely there. With Nuda, his role in the story, I think we're, we're more than happy with mm. from that point so of view. So that makes Bresh and Nuda a pair, if you like. It does, yeah. And because Nuda is the Wounded King, then anything that Bresh does after that will go wrong. Mm. Because he's been sent in to create chaos. Mm. And he gets his chance to make chaos, yeah. although unconsciously, I think. Exactly. Once uh, the wound takes place. Yes. And he becomes, well, I call him a sort of shadow king. Yeah. Think about our mirroring, episode on mirroring. There's but, another yeah. mirroring we didn't think of, actually. Exactly, yeah, in, in episode seven. Bresh then becomes a sort of shadow of the wounded king. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the Fovera and the two of the Daedanon, as we have said many times, there are very closely related yeah, you know equal and opposite groups yeah but part of the same family yeah. tree the fovra aren't in our ninth century text they're not monsters they're not sort of evil well, invaders not, yeah, evil baddies yeah they're and they're not from overseas that's i think the really important bit exactly in fact it's the two of dadanon who have come from overseas even oh, though yes the landing on schlimmel and in their cloud ships yes yeah even even though you know, that does appear, if you like, in a Middle Irish section of our text, which reflects the later Levagorbola tradition. Nonetheless, because of this peculiar gloss that appears in both the 9th century and the later 14th century early mm -hmm. modern Irish text, they both say, you know, it was said that they landed in cloud ships. Well, but although that's fact, true. That's exactly. not true. No, no one would believe that nowadays. So that means there was a very early tradition that they landed in cloud ships. Exactly, that there was a previous quite strongly held tradition that these authors felt compelled to correct. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Whee! Yeah. yeah. Um, well, mind you, that puts the story of Nuder and Bresh into a different context. Mm. And I suppose, therefore, because of the wounding of the king and the rule of the Shadow King, mm. the prosperity of Ireland is lost. Exactly. It, it can't survive the, the rule of Bresh. So Elitha's plan is succeeding. Yes. Aha, Dada. You want to go mwahaha. <laughs> so we're okay with Bresh. We're okay with Nuder's role in the story. Yeah. Well, the next shiny foreigner, then, must be Ogma. Yeah. Now, we, we have talked before about 
Ogma's role in the tale and in particular um, Chris's article on series two episode four. Oh yeah, what was it? Dagda, Dagda Ogma and the Jolly, Jolly Green, Green Giant. Giant. Though I never talk much about the Jolly Green Giant, just sounded good. But it's, it's the right figure I think. Linguistically, how do we yeah. deal with it? Well the figure of Ogmios is very popular on the continent mm -hmm. um, and relatively well attested although once you start digging you realize actually there's only a couple of sources one of those sources is the roman satirist lucian right <laughs> you know how, how much truth can you get from an enemy satirist <laughs> who knows anywho in linguistic terms certainly um it's thought that ogmios refers to tracks and trails and paths and that includes orbital paths That's as well which is interesting and big the, clubs trails and tracks yeah mm, yeah okay. sounds familiar um there is this well-known image engraving as well of ogmios where he has a great big club he's shown as being very old um and of course he has the ears of his followers uh linked to his tongue with chains. Where's this idea of eloquence? Exactly. Come from? Exactly. Is he connected with Ogham? Now, this is the curious thing. It seems, uh -oh. yeah, if if the root for Ogham and for Ogma in Irish was Ogmios, we would get a very different word. We'd get Ova or something like that. Yeah. Because yeah. the GM would disappear. It's an IO stem, so it would have a slender ending, all that kind of stuff. So it seems that the term Ogham itself for the script really has an origin meaning to cut. Which makes sense. It does, because it's an inscriptive language, you know, it's it's cut into bits of wood or stone. Mm -hmm. As for Ochma himself, it seems as though the name is a bit of a construction, mm. um, partly constructed from Ogham, the, the mm. word itself, but probably also influenced by the figure of Ogmios, who would yeah. have been popular in Britain. So the name is a synthetic name. It is, yeah. That's and, interesting. Yeah, and it's sort of trying to bring together both Ogham and then this figure of yeah, there's Ogmios. some suggestion that um, uh, his name it, it may connect with Rhiannon's father in the Welsh, whose name meant strong, old. Yes, an old and, strong man. And gave a connection with Heracles. Yeah. But that's the old man carrying a club. Yes, exactly. Um, but it's a bit, you know, it's there, but it's, mm. it, I, I keep feeling it's slightly tenuous. Um, though I, it's there. Mm. Mm. Um, but in our story, get back to our text, yeah. Ogma is only there as a strong man. Exactly. He's always described as trainer, and even though that's usually translated as champion, it, its literal meaning is strong man. Mm. And he's the one who tests loot when he comes to Tara. Exactly, with the, the flinging of the flagstones. Like yeah, that. all that kind of thing. Um, and as I said, we did say before that he, he does seem very closely connected to the Dagda. He's just, they're described as being brothers. The same character, essentially. I think so. And particularly when you look at that stuff of the big club making tracks, which we know the Dagda does with his giant wheeled fork and his large club. The Dagda's also eloquent. I think that we could quite safely give Ogma's part in the story to Dagda and they're very often doing the same tasks anyway so we wouldn't yeah. really lose much. So you're saying that the figure of Ogma becomes so popular he just had to be fitted in. Yeah. Um, there's one interesting bit, the retrieval of the sword order yeah. seems unique. Yeah it does, it's it's a very curious part of the tale. Now it doesn't appear in Gray's list of the, the wonderful preterical uh, old Irish, definitely old Irish sections of the tale. That doesn't mean it's not 
part of that stratum. It, it just might means be another we can't story define woven in. I think it might well be. You know, that there, there's some some other popular story that seems to connect in. They go, oh yeah, this is the perfect time to tell that one. So in our speculative proto story, mm. we are inclined to give Upwards part to the Lagda. I'd say so. Yeah, and we don't lose much. No, no, I don't think so. Well, now we come to the Dagda himself. Oh yes, who is most definitively an Irish character. There's no cognates to his name or to a lot of his uh, stories mm. in, you know, any of the other Celtic traditions, including the Welsh, which is usually quite closely related yeah. to these stories. There certainly is no continental doctor. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. He's Irish. And he has some wonderful Irish qualities. <laughs> For instance, earthiness. Oh, yeah. Now, I love, you know, he's a shaper of earthworks and yeah. a great builder. Yeah, he's the one who builds Dunrecha, the, the fort of Bresh, you yeah. know. And uh, there are other earthworks that have yeah. been attributed to him. Around he has the power of river raising and lowering the, the mountains and yeah. the land, which changing he, the shape of the land. Yeah, which he promises to do in that first muster and it's also the secret muster yeah yeah the Amrun and also it's it's kind of indicated in his name when he gives he, his full name he's a former and maker of boundaries yeah again there's that stuff about that the, the track of his club was wide enough for a boundary ditch of a province mm-hmm. you know so he yeah. makes the boundaries they spay boundaries yeah exactly um, and of course there's all the stuff about hospitality and mm. that includes food and sex of course and both food and sex are integral to Irish hospitality, you've got the the. Be <laughs> careful what you say. <laughs> well, in them days, in let's them say days. in them days, uh, we've got the early episode Just of us. We have all the hen nights in the carrot. <laughs> oh I mean... no, 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 no! That's not what I mean. Don't go there. No, that's not what I mean at all. <laughs> We've got oh. that early episode of the Dyke and Creedon Vale, you yeah. know, which is, if you like, a, a, an example of, of twisted hospitality, abuse of hospitality. Because he's known for his wonderful cauldron of hospitality. Exactly, that will satisfy everyone. Yeah. And then, of course, when he later goes to the Fuvara camp, they try to essentially um, make him fail at being a good guest. But, of course... You know, he has this endless capacity. So, yeah. uh, for, and not only for all the food they give him, but also the endless capacity for taking in Dave's daughter when she is, oh, we think, sequence. sent to be also too much for him. <laughs> <laughs> no, she, mind you, it's touch and go at that point. <laughs> well, it's for a while. T- touch and spew. <laughs> <laughs> and then if we look at his another quality, mm. his eloquence and his wisdom. Oh, yes. And I mean, his wisdom is always, it's not ponderous, it's always wordplay, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, again, the sense that he can twist the letter of the law, if you like. Mm-hmm. Particularly, there's that things where he he's advised by his son, Oingas, to put three bits of gold into the portions on his plate. And then those are the best bits, which, of course, is what Creedon Vale asks for. And so, you know, it does both things, both gets mm. rid of Creedon Vale, it also sets Bresh up for a false judgment, he, which is yeah, really important. he has important. a deep understanding of the law. Exactly. When Bresh says, you know, you have murdered this man by some deadly herb, what he replies is near fear flat earth. You know, you don't have the fear flat of him, the truth of the king. And that is, you know, an absolute... Yeah. Breach. He brings Bresh down at that brings point. Brings Bresh down. Mm. And if he says something, it is the truth. Yes, it becomes true through his saying it. Even though, you know, still in, in other sources like the poems and Alec, you know, he does say that which is not right cannot be done by me. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. so again, it's that uh, there's a sense that the, the truth and the justice kind of comes yeah. from him. He has the 
playfulness and the understanding of the law, but mm. the, the ability, it's, it's almost like a modern lawyer. In some <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it might seem so, but I think you would forgive the dagged an awful lot more than you yeah, would a lawyer. He has a sense of humour too. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then of course there's this wonderful relationship with his son. Yeah, yeah, which is just beautiful, I think. You know, they're a pair, yeah. but they share ideas. And they they're do. both tricky. Yeah, and they advise each other, but they also take on each other's tasks. And of course it's Angus who suggests to the Dagda, you know, as well as this scheme for pushing Brecht into a false judgment, mm. he also advises the Dagda that as payment for his work, he must bring all the cattle together and all he needs to do is pick out that one So he can say to Brecht, for my payment, all yeah. I want is one little Just one little wafer sin heifer. And of course, Brecht goes, oh yeah, of course. You yeah. only want that? Yeah. 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 No and interestingly enough, later on, the stories, later on, the stories of Dagda and his son, mm. I think really become the stories of the wondersmith and his son, the yeah. goblin seer. And even though transformed, goblin mm. becomes a builder. Exactly, yeah. Which ha he having... isn't originally, he's a smith. Exactly, he's the smith originally, but in the goblin seer tradition, he is a builder. It's almost like, you know, we've talked about the version of a cult of the masons in Ireland mm, which full was full of verbal tricks yeah exactly and so yeah Goblin Sarah and his son and they even tell the stories of the Dagdon Angus they do you know he's often in the story exactly and yet the stories seem to be the stories that were told of Dagda and yes, Angus exactly yeah yeah, yeah. So we can say that Dagda's absolutely central to mm. the story. Mm. In, if anyway, he oversees the story. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's always there sort of from beginning to end. He will do it all himself, as he says in the muster. But he's never quite, he's always there, but he's never quite what people expect. Yeah. You know, it always turns out slightly different. He does see further than others, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He takes um, a long view. Yeah, well, Morrigan has that problem as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we can deal with her in series one. Episode six and series two, episode six. So if we have a third series, we really must make sure that she's, she's not, not episode, episode six. <laughs> Otherwise, people will get very suspicious, and that's not our intent at all. But yeah, we have at length discussed the the role of the Morrigan and how it has become, if you like, misinterpreted as turned her into a battle goddess. Yeah, but she's the Dagda's woman. Always, always, you know, it's always understood. And even in that wonderful passage in our tale where they meet and they mate in the couple's bed over the river Unshun, Unshun which yeah. people say, oh, she must be, must have been giants. No, it's, it's a very little river. It's very small. But in, throughout that, she's just called Inven, the woman. Mm. And uh, it's only at the very end, it says, almost in brackets, you know, the woman mentioned here is the Morrigan. You yeah, know, yeah. so she's always the woman. And she's also always the Dagda's woman. So they're a very strongly attached pair. Uh, well, she's a poet and yeah. recorder. Yeah, and she makes things official. She's the one who declares war, and she's the one who declares peace. Exactly. She's also again wholly Irish. Yes. Yeah. And even though, you know, you might think that there are linguistic cognates, particularly in the Welsh, there's sort of two choices, if you like. There's Mor Morgan, but the etymology of that is actually Murrigan. It's mm. sort of born of the sea. It's a different yeah, route. Different route. The other one is Rhiannon, who we have kind of made comparisons between these two. Well, there are the comparisons, past. but they're not yeah. actually the same character. No, they're not. And uh, both names seem to mean kind of great queen. But the thing about the Morrigan is that, in a way, that's her title. Like, 
the Dagda is the title of the Dagda. Yeah. The Dagda's name is Yochid Olaf, Olaf yeah. but the Morgan's name, if you like, is Boiv. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's something again that is very much. But she has her ours. birds, her black birds. Exactly, yeah. I, I've often wondered about this because, mm. of course, Rhiannon has her singing birds. Yeah. I've always felt that the, her bird was the Ouzel, mm. the black bird, yeah. uh, who has a beautiful song yeah. and who is often confused. You know, yeah. it's, it's just lumped. With, with crows, crows with, with, yeah, uh, and yet, well, there are differences. I there think. are, yeah. yeah. So we can't. All, we they, they are maybe connected, but they're yeah. not cognate. I don't think they're cognate. No. So we're keeping the Morrigan. She's absolutely central. She's there at the beginning, in the end, and she and the Dagda. It's almost as though they see that chaos is coming, mm. and so what they do is to turn over all the ant hills. Yeah, yeah. Which makes the order has they know the order has to break down in order to establish a yeah. new balance. Exactly. They have to clear the space away and then through their partnership they're creating the conditions for new natural order to grow again. So it's worth pointing out that even though the Morrigan her name or title means great queen, neither she nor the Dagda ever actually rule. Yeah, neither a king or queen. No, in later tradition you find that the Dagda has become king, but that's kind of because he's just too important not to be a king. If yeah, you he like. gets a few years reign. I think it's something like 40 years. It's it? about 80, 80 yeah, years, in, in the later tradition. And again, dies of a wound he received at Maitura. 80 but, years later. Yeah, but that that's a kind of a later thing that goes, oh God, this is really important and he was there at the battle, so these things that happened to other characters must have happened to him. But no, he's he's quite different. He's not a king and neither is Morrigan a queen. Now we get to the difficult bit. Yep. <laughs> Tricky bit. The biggest problem. What do we do about Lou? Yeah, I mean, Lou's role and character, it changes considerably over the history of the tale. Oh, it does, it? yeah. As we've seen in comparing both the old Irish, early modern Irish, and then in the story of the Children of Turin. Um, now, a lot of his sections of the text, they do appear in those good old Irish, preterite-rich sections, so we can't excise them on linguistic grounds. Mm -hmm. um, but as we've said before, particularly when we were looking at him in this series, episode three, um, he's not solely an Irish character, not solely an insular character. He's very popular in the continental Celtic mm -hmm. um, traditions. And even, you know, despite how he's later portrayed, we've seen that his etymology, it doesn't have anything to do with light or shining, that, you know, at root he is a Trixie links. Yeah, it's all about tricking. Oh, yeah. And then also you have this connection, particularly in the Welsh, where it's connected with the idea of being small, something small. Yeah, um, the, as he is the, the after, it's almost like he's born of the afterbirth yeah. in, the, in the story of, of uh, Aranrod. Yes, yeah. Uh, he's small, but it doesn't, that, that small doesn't seem to connect with the Irish, does um, it? I'm not convinced. You're not happy about no, it. No, I'm not convinced. I, I think there could be, if you like, almost a poetic connection, you know, and and certainly in the way that his fight with Balor is described, you know, yeah. it has that kind of, you know, little small boy against great big evil yeah, yeah. This brings me to another of my problems. Yes. And this is one that goes right back to when I first read the tale. Mm. Um, the trouble is the, it's what I call the David problem. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the, the, I always worried or was made anxious it sounds a bit over the top <laughs> oh i've always been anxious about this but it it, it always would concern me the similarity of the lou balor mm. story 
uh, with that of David and Goliath. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, that's something that, you know, was apparent to me. I'm no biblical scholar by any manner of means. But particularly, the fact that Louis uses a sling instead of his trademark spear always yeah, kind of... he has this spear, doesn't he? He's yeah. also got the sword, the answerer. He's got loads of stuff, but he doesn't use any of it. <laughs> he uses a sling. And yeah. yet that is there in the original text. It in is, the in the ninth text we've got. Text. Yeah, exactly. But it's more than that. Mm. It's not just a story of David and Goliath. That's a story about David that everybody knows. Exactly, yeah. Now, I was brought up with biblical texts till the point where I actually had to date scripture examples. <laughs> oh my goodness, don't talk about it. <laughs> but the story of David, which the full story of David, mm. which would have been very familiar to the ninth century scholars. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The clerics, anyway. Yeah. Oh, a lot of them. Um, is that there's more similarities. Mm. For instance, it's less well known, the choosing of David. Mm. He was, I mean, the king, Saul, yeah. was chosen by Samuel, you know, the great prophet. And yeah. The, if you like, the druidic figure of the mm. time. And if, if Samuel spoke then whatever he said went true yeah you know and he could he could make or break the king yeah uh, very much a kingmaker yeah he takes Saul and he makes him into a king in fact the the, the crime he commits mm. is actually to fail to kill uh, the king of the enemies and he yeah goes, God says you must kill every one of them man woman and children wipe out this people and Saul says what's well, a bit tough yeah <laughs> and besides that the king will give us all his lands and he'll mm. give us all this wealth so mm. why don't we let him live yeah Samuel says you're not king anymore you're a false king because you haven't done what I said that you had to do. You yeah. know? In other words, Samuel feels that the wealth of the people, the long-term prosperity of the children of Israel will mm. be damaged without the killing of the king. But secretly he goes away mm. and he chooses another king. Yeah. And the boy who is just the youngest son of, 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 a, of a noble mm -hmm. you know, is, is chosen as a king and goes on when he's brought to uh, the battlefield. Mm. Uh, where David, where, where Goliath is, yeah. so the Phil Philistines are about to fight. He's already the chosen king. Mm. He's brought in as an out secret outsider. Yeah, and I felt that, 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 that you know this also mirrors Lou and mm. the, the coming of this shiny foreigner into the story. Yeah, and e even that thing about if you like a, a a king's reign being ended through the word of the priest. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's not dissimilar to Carver's satire on Bresh. In, in yes, I mean, it's all done terms. through words. Yeah, yeah. It's not that he says, come on, soldiers, put mm. it down. Mm. He knows his word is what makes it so. Yeah. And there are there are stronger parallels than just hitting battle with a sling. Yes, yeah. So it sort of worried me that mm. was this, if you like, going, oh, look, like, rather like when we had the children of Turin last week, we said, oh, come on, look, we want our own labours of Hercules. Yeah. So what's more, we're going to go better. Yes, yeah, so we're going to bring in Jason and we're going to bring in all these classical myths. They're all in one and we're going to do better because we don't need anybody's help. We just go in and kill Lots. everyone. <laughs> but it's it's whether, you know, somehow it's the, as it were, taking on the power of the biblical story yeah. influenced yeah. this more than is apparent. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just a feeling I have. Well, it's, it's not just your uneasiness. It's other characters in the story seem to have this very ambivalent attitude towards Mug. Um, there's this all this stuff about trying to keep him from the battle you know in in the early modern irish version there's this scheme to get him drunk so that you know he won't go and join in the battle in the ninth century text he's being protected by his uh, fosters you know and there's even in that story in the early modern irish about one of the reasons for the two of the burning their cloud ships after they arrived was so that 
Lulk couldn't mm-hmm. come and yeah. challenge Nuitha for the kingship. And it's not just because of his beauty that they want to keep him. Is no. It? There's another feeling that they actually don't want him involved. Yeah, and, and you know, he he's never really, he never actually assumes the, kin, the kingship. Actually, David takes a long time. He has to be a secret king playing music for Saul yeah. to keep him sane. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a long time, you know, and then he becomes his battle captain. Yeah. And uh, then you, he happens to be a very successful captain. So mm. all the people are singing Saul has slain his thousands but David has slain tens of thousands yeah. and Saul gets extremely jealous of course yeah. and there, there are parallels here yeah, aren't there yeah that kind of jealousy or, or suspicion between mm. the, the sitting monarch and the, the young upstart <laughs> yeah I mean it's probably just coincidence but I do think there are echoes yeah um, well it looks like it looks like Lou escapes from wherever he came from and comes to join in this really good story. Yes. <laughs> However you try to prevent him, Lou's got to be there. Yeah, you can't keep Lou from the Battle uh, of Whitehurst. He's determined to get in. He's just, you know, he's just too good a character. Yeah, yeah. Like David, in a way. Yeah. And by the time of the children of Turin, mm. Lou is turned into this wonderful fairy hero with his fairy cavalcade <laughs> and all his mananan gifts of bling. Yes. I mean, he's a, you know, he's, he's a Greek hero. Yeah, he, he is. really yeah, is. Absolutely. Absolutely very, and uh, oh, and of course, he's in the children of Turin by this time. He's out to win the battle single handed, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> sort of no one else will do it. Well, I'll do it all myself, said the little red hen. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking, yeah, more like uh, no wonder he becomes Jack the Giant Killer, yeah, yeah, which again we looked at in series mm. two, episode three, and gave yeah. evidence for why he becomes Jack the Giant Killer, yeah, Jack the Lad. He really is oh, Jack yeah, the Lad, yeah. Uh, trouble is, if we exclude Lou from the story, yeah, what do we do about Balor? Well, yeah, they are very much in, intrinsically linked to one another. Um, well, Bala's definitely there in the ninth century, isn't he? Oh, he he certainly is. As much as Lou is integral yeah. to that time in the telling, but they kind of exist because of the other one. Each exists well, because of the other one. Bala also grows in the telling. Oh, he does. I yeah. mean, he starts off as a battle captain mm. of the Fovera mm. and he has this poisonous eye, which is not a magical burning eye. No, and, and also it's not necessarily, he's not necessarily a cyclops. It's that one of his eyes took in the poison of this, yeah. you know, magical potion that his father was brewing. I mean, he's a powerful champion, yeah. but he's not, he's just a champion. Yeah, but by the time we get to Children of Tyran, yeah, he's he's the king, king of the Fovera. Of the Fovera. And, you know, he, he uh, in the folk tales, he becomes this terrible giant and this idea eye. of the burning eye and yeah. all that stuff, you know? Now, I've got a theory. Uh, yeah. I, I mentioned it once before. Mm. I think he's actually came in with the uh, Northmen, Northmen yeah. and that uh, he's actually a frost giant. <laughs> yes, I think he easily could be. And the reason that I think this is because in the Children of Turin, there's this wonderful passage. And this, of course, would have been after the time of the, uh, oh, yeah, the Viking this... incursion. Oh, long after. Yeah, yeah. You know, by the time you get to the Children of Turin, it's old history. Yeah. And you've got this figure who says, go and conquer them and then we'll tow the island north to the cold and snow. Yes, yes. So yeah. they'll never be able to find it. Yeah. yeah. Well, don't, they'll never be able to find it. Yeah. That's right. yeah. I think that's a brilliant story. It but it sounds like a frost giant. <laughs> does yeah so we've got this kind of this norse frost giant who's escaped from lachlan and then we've got this shiny this continental continental solar hero, solar hero and they're biblical overtones oh yeah and they're fighting a battle in ireland 
well, worse things have happened in uh, video games. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, what Marvel Days does today with comic book heroes. Yeah. I mean, let's bring the best of them. We'll have that one from that one, and we'll have that one from that one, and we'll end up with the Avengers. And we'll yes. Thor, and we'll have Captain America. And yeah. we'll have, oh, who else was there? <laughs> well, you know? Loki on the other side. <laughs> oh, and, yeah, yeah. Green Lantern. And, Green Lantern. Yeah. We'll have them all, and we'll pull them together yeah. and see which one wins. Exactly. I mean, it's a bit like the, you know, the child going, who do you think would win in a fight between a shark and a bear? <laughs> You know, <laughs> who do you think would win between a frost giant and a continental hero? Exactly. Of yeah. You know, I mean, and this is where this idea of uh, it could be a version of Boulder and, yeah. and so forth. But it's just it's like two really good heroes. Yeah. What would happen if we put them together in the middle of a story well, and let them at each other? Exactly. It's it's your big boss fight, your end of level <laughs> boss fight. But it's something you know, if comic book writers do it now, then you know, storytellers of the past could have equally done the same thing. Absolutely. And why not? Yeah. It's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm all for it. Yeah, it's great fun. <laughs> End of part one. To continue the conversation, listen to part two.